0: Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area,
1: we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com.
0: Good morning, church family. Um, I want to echo something that Pastor Luke preached just a few weeks ago. Um, He preached out of Isaiah 11. Um, Actually, while I'm here, let me mention that uh, the messages that Pastor Luke preaches are quality messages. I hope that we know that. Um, They're very well thought through. I hope that we know that, that we have a sort of unique uh, availability in the messages that we hear from Pastor Luke. I I really do hope that you know that, church. Um, There's something for everyone. I I think of uh, in the Proverbs, when when Proverbs, this is not what I had prepared, but I do want to say this while I'm here. Um, the Proverbs open up and they say something like, um, these are Proverbs for the young who need to develop wisdom and for those who are already wise to grow in wisdom. And I think pastor's messages are similar in that there's something for everyone. Wherever you are in your spiritual walk, there's a value for you. So take preparations to take all that you can away from the messages that Pastor Luke preaches. And I mean stuff like like, go to bed on time before Sunday morning so that you could be focused. Do you know what I mean? Take the the preparations necessary to take away all that you can from services. Yeah, um, that's not what I had prepared, but I, <laughs> I think that that's, that's valuable for us. So where was I before I started all that? Right, I want to echo something that Pastor preached a few weeks ago, um, something that I think is relevant for us as we move into worship. Um, it's in Isaiah. Pastor preached out of Isaiah 11, and he preached about hope. So much of... Um, Isaiah's prophecy is actually warning Um, it's warning because he's uh, warning the nation of Judah that they're about to go into exile and he's he's telling them like okay exile is coming things will be difficult it will be painful you will go into captivity and all this is due to your own rebellion that's a huge portion of Isaiah's message So Isaiah is prophesying to the people in this way, but what I find interesting is that he gives constant glimpses of hope. Now, Pastor, use Isaiah 11. I'll use Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, now remember, this is in light of Isaiah saying that you're about to enter captivity. And in the midst of saying that, he says this. He says, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah stops prophesying about the destruction to come, and he begins to prophesy about the greatest of all hopes in Jesus. He's saying destruction is coming, but so is redemption He's saying there will be suffering, but there will be restoration. There will be pain, but there will be hope. There is hope. So church, the, the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of the greatest of all hopes, which is ultimately the redemption of sins for us. Yeah. On. Amen. So in Isaiah's day, they, they hoped for Jesus' first coming, and today we hope for his second coming, but... God has has fulfilled the promise of his word, and he will do it again, and he will do it every time. I hope that we know that. So, church, what I'm getting at is that we have a God who we can hope in because we have a God who we can trust. I hope that we know that this morning. His word is predictably faithful. So, church, let's worship him this morning with hope due to his faithfulness. All right, We want to talk about peace on earth this morning. Um,
1: I think in some ways we've been we've been looking at things the wrong way around, and that that's what happens when we look at things from a self centered perspective rather than a God oriented perspective. Is that we we see things backwards. We see things in terms of how it suits us and how it affects us, and not necessarily how God has ordained it. And uh, you could see kind of these kinds of things happening throughout history uh, for everyday stuff, we say that the sun rises and the sun sets, but it actually isn't the sun rising and the sun setting. It's the earth rotating, right? And so there's a lot of things that are like that. And and I think freedom uh, is like that. We tend to think of freedom as the absence of any kind of outward restraint or absence of accountability. And uh, it's uh, being able to choose to do whatever we want to do without any kind of restraint. I remember telling my mom one time, Uh, that I didn't have to do that, whatever that was, because it's a free country. Yeah, that was a bad idea. I'd heard it from one of my friends, and it sounded pretty good. Uh, Who is my mom compared to the Constitution, right? (laughs) Uh, I wasn't thinking probably along those lines. I just knew communists were not free, and we were, and that I shouldn't have to do what I didn't want to do. And I don't remember what her answer was, but it was probably something along the lines of, uh, not in my house, and it turns out that she was the one who cooked my dinner. So I wasn't free after all to make the decisions that I wanted to make. And I found out that my parents were the king and queen of a benevolent dictatorship that uh, started once I stepped on the property and extended somehow magically to the school and church and anywhere else a nine-year-old would find themselves and she could have quoted for me Galatians chapter four, verses one and two, that says, "As long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father." Uh, she could have quoted that. I don't think she thought of doing that, but it's pretty good. If you're a parent, you need a verse that says, <laughs> "You have to do what I what I want you to do while you're under my roof." This is a great one. It's Galatians chapter four, verse one and two. I would mark that and referred to it again and again. But freedom is not necessarily freedom from all restriction. It's the ability to choose to do the right thing. See, what we've done is we've taken the dignity that God has given us as free moral agents, and he's given us responsibility to act responsibly, and we've stripped it from its purpose, and we've made it only freedom from and not freedom to. Are you with me? That when we think about freedom, a lot of times we think of, the, of being free from the restrictors or accountability or the dictates of other people, and we don't think about how what freedom is intended for is for good purpose. Remember, it says in Galatians, uh, you're free, but don't use your freedom as uh, for liberty for the flesh, but by love, serve one another. So we're called to a purpose within our freedom. And I would suggest to you that there is no absolute freedom in this life, and thank God, because evil people would use it for absolute evil. And so we have a relative kind of freedom. There are restrictions, and I think probably if we all lived by the moral law, we wouldn't have to have so many laws of of other kinds. If we lived by the law that God put within us, We wouldn't have to have all these external laws pressing in on us, but because we've acted out of bounds, we've trespassed, we've stepped across boundaries, we have to have these external pressures come in and tell us that's wrong. But if we acted responsibly, there's great freedom in doing that. But we've taken freedom and we've looked at its negative side and said it's it's freedom from, and we forget that freedom is really about being free to choose certain things. Freedom is not freedom from all restrictions it's the ability to choose to do the right thing now we're not talking mainly about freedom this morning it's not the main focus, but what we do to freedom we also we also do in a sense to peace and I thought by comparing these two we might get a chance to look at it and see that there are some ways in which we we do this with peace. We take away what peace is by emphasizing what it isn't okay when we understand that it helps us to understand there's more to it than what we we often think of when we think of peace. When we talk about peace, we usually mean what? The absence of something, what? Stress, conflict, war, difficulty maybe? Like just give me some peace, will you? We're thinking along those lines, and I, I suggest that it typically generally would fall, if we did a a quiz like what we did here and we asked what does peace mean to you and we gave like four different options, I think it would fall heavily in two areas. One is absence of conflict, and number two is psychological tranquility. We might not say it in those words, but what we mean is we don't want to feel stress. We don't want to feel the pressure on us. And so what we've done is we've changed the meaning of peace to mean those kinds of things. And so we talk about peace, we usually mean the absence of conflict or psychological tranquility. And while both of those have their place, biblical peace is so much more than that. That's what I want to proclaim today is this biblical peace that Jesus promises to bring. He's the prince of peace. Let's take a look at our passage and we'll see exactly where this is going. And I'll try to point out some of the things that were on our our quiz here. Um, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. That's verse 1. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. How is he going to honor Galilee? Somebody say it. Jesus is going to walk there. That's where he's going to live. He's going to have a Galilean accent. Do you know, I was reading this week. Let me pause here. For this thought, this week, that people from Galilee had an accent that could be noticed. It's almost like being from the northern part of England where they, they drop the H sound in their words. That's what they had, and so it would have been recognizable. This is where God chose to put his son, in Galilee of the nations. There's more to that, but we, we can't focus on that today for lack of time. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land. Of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us, the son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. That's a way of saying that he will shoulder the responsibility for ruling and reigning. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. That's the supernatural leader. Wonderful, we don't always get this because we think of wonderful as something like marshmallows and, I don't know, something fluffy, that that's wonderful or something great that happens. But wonderful is actually... Uh, Borrowing from the Hebrew word Pella Where it it talks about uh, being miraculous He's a miraculous leader Of course he is Wonderful counselor, the mighty God God the hero here El Gabor Everlasting father And the prince of peace Of the greatness of his government and peace There will be no end He will rule on David's throne And over his kingdom Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness From that time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So I want to take us to the biblical concept of peace because here we're, we're told that he will be, uh, one, one title in particular that stands out, he will be the prince of peace. Okay? He will be the prince of peace. He will be the ruler who brings peace. Okay, So here's what happens. I'm sorry if that's kind of small. Let me take a look from over here. You can see this... Uh, concept of peace, that, that part that kind of looks like a golf ball over to the left, that's peace as it's used today. And we, we usually mean um, absence of conflict, either in terms of conflict relationally or conflict mentally or emotionally, that peace we mean as the absence of something, okay? But that's, the, that's our, our understanding of what peace is. When we talk about biblical peace, it's so much more than that, okay, are you with me? It's so much more. It's the presence of wholeness, health, completeness. And will ultimately include absence of conflict. Having peace that God gives doesn't mean that there isn't stuff going on around us. It means that in the middle of that, that we have a wholeness about us because of what God has done. I hope you'll get a hold of this because I think if it really sinks down deep in us, it's going to change how we view life. So what we've done when we look at it just this one way over here is we've exchanged a positive concept for a negative one. And even now I have to admit to you, as I was studying for this, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that because when I hear peace, I usually think of one thing. I mean the absence of conflict, the absence of battle, the absence of conflict in personal relationships, the absence of war in the world. We want peace on earth. And we wonder at it sometimes that if he's the Prince of Peace, why are there still wars? And ultimately, we know that there is going to be the absence of conflict. But in the meantime, he's developing pockets of peace all throughout this world. There are people right now, you and I, I hope, that have the peace of God in us. We have wholeness despite the the scars of past relationships. We have the scars of past sins. We may have the, the difficulty of having grown up in a difficult home or whatever it may be. But we still have at the core of who we are peace. Come on, somebody say amen if that's you. That you have wholeness and well-being because Jesus is in your life, and he's setting all things right. You might not feel like you've arrived, but you're headed there. God's doing something. And so when we think of a purely negative concept of the absence of difficulty, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around the idea that peace could be brother to blessing. Look at Numbers chapter 6 where, uh, where um, God tells Moses to tell Aaron, this is how you're supposed to bless the children of Israel. And he says, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make, your, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and what? Give you peace. Okay, Peace and blessing go hand in hand. If you are living under the reign of Christ, you have a peace about you, are under God's blessing, and therefore you are whole. And, and sometimes the actuality of peace doesn't always translate to psychological peace in which we don't, feel, we don't feel at peace with ourselves because somehow there's a disconnect in that bridge. Maybe we haven't come to terms with the fact of what God's really done for us. But you, you see, I'm trying to make a comparison here with guilt and shame. Let's, let's use those as examples. When you talk about guilt, have you ever, as a Christian, being forgiven of your sins, still felt ashamed of the things that you did long ago? Anybody? Okay, you feel ashamed. Even now, if if somebody brought it up, you might feel a little bit ashamed that you actually did those things. But is the guilt there? Is it? Um, uh, no. The guilt's not there if you're in Christ. Because the guilt is not the psychological state. The guilt is... The objective fact that God has sins that are counted against you. But when he, Jesus came, he took your guilt upon himself. And so the guilt is removed. Guilt feelings are not the same as actual guilt. You can feel ashamed but be forgiven. You cannot necessarily uh, recognize the peace of God in terms of having the feeling of peace and still have the peace of God because he's done something for you. And if that's not convincing, I'd like you to think about how uh, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, how that he was in turmoil almost to the point of despair. And yet he was under the peace of God. So today, um, if I'm honest, I'm hoping to put peace in a new light for us. And then I'd like to invite us to it by inviting us to the peace giver. That's the aim. So there's this promise of peace in the middle of conflict. We'll talk about our passage more in just a moment. But peace is the the conviction that your well-being is in God's hands. It's an enduring well-being being being guaranteed by God through all of life's hilltops and valleys. Let's talk about the ruler of peace. And this is uh, who it talks about in the prince of peace here. It says in verse 6, again, For unto us a child is born. This is talking about a future event. As Isaiah Isaiah writes this, uh, as God gives it to him, there's still about 700 years that are going to pass before this is fulfilled. So he's writing, and a lot of times when um, prophets write, they write in the present tense as if it's happening now, but it's still a future event because they're writing with certainty that this is going to happen. For unto us a child is born, not will be born, is born. Okay, so he's thinking in the prophetic present, like this is going to happen. He's seeing the vision as if it's right here. And now he's telling us a child is born, a son is given. Government will be upon his shoulders. He's, gonna, he's going to carry the mantle of leadership for his people. And then it, it talks about the different aspects of who he is, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The title here means that when he rules the results ultimately will be peace, biblical peace. Now, there's the peace that we have right now, and there's the peace that's coming in the future, the ultimate peace. When he comes again, there will be absence of war. There will be absence of conflict because we'll be living under the rule of one. Right now, we're in a world that's divided by two kingdoms, two kingdoms at war with each other. Are you with me? And sometimes... Well, we we often obviously know the devil fights on one side, right? We know that the world often fights on one side, right? but do you know that sometimes the flesh fights on that side too? and so we can find the conflict running right through the middle of us too. We're facing that battle. We're fighting that conflict is here. But there's coming a day, and I would encourage you with this, if you're holding on and you're wondering where is the victory over temptation, I want you to hold on to Jesus because we know that conflict too will come to an end. We can have victory in this life, and we can have victory in the life to come, but it will come if we'll trust in Jesus and not let go. You know, no biblical prophecy ever came in a vacuum. Uh, It would be Interesting to find out how many times prophecy came because things were good. Like, well, this is your local prophet. I just want to tell you, God thinks things are a-okay. It's all good. Nothing really to say here except keep on keeping on. I'm sure there are some places like that. But as I think through it, most of the time prophecy comes when things were bad and they needed to have some kind of word of hope or some kind of correction or both. As Joe mentioned a little bit ago, that there's a lot of correction that comes in Isaiah, but there's also, it's intermingled with this hope, like, I want you to know this is going to happen, but but don't go far in despair because I'm going to remedy it. And So he's encouraging in these ways, but usually the circumstances are bad, and sometimes it's bad even though the people don't know it's bad because it's, according to their bank accounts, it's really good. According to the national sense of peace, Things are really good. We don't have any enemies invading. We don't have any internal in, uh, turmoil. Do you know that one of the most prosperous kings in the northern kingdom's history, in terms of everybody feeling like everything was good, was Ahab? They, everybody thought everything was great. He's the guy they would have elected had they had some kind of a democracy or a republic. That's who they would have elected. Let's get Ahab back in office because it's good. But the problem was that there was still conflict, and the problem was that people were worshiping the wrong God, and he wasn't going to let it go on forever. And so he shut off the water spout, and the rain stopped, and he got people's attention. So prophecy doesn't come in a vacuum. As I said, oftentimes it was... It was um, in the middle of difficulty. And so it's important for us to know the things that kind of surround the reason that prophecies come. And they they don't just happen like as this mystical saying like the oracles of Delphi where they're vague and you can just kind of interpret them however you want. No, we need to understand what God is trying to say here. I bought this uh, used book a while back. And uh, I like looking in the cover, especially if there's Bibles. Sometimes I find it saddens me a little bit, but I'll find in the cover of Bibles. You can find them at Goodwill or Value Village. And the other day I found one that was kind of heartbreaking. Apparently two kids gave a Bible to their dad. How did it end up at Goodwill? And it sometimes has a little note, dear dad, hope you're doing well. Hope that uh, you can meet the Lord through this. And it got donated, so i don't know what happened. I don't know the backstory. Well, the other day, I bought this book, and it had this note in it, okay, and it's not great grammar because I think somebody's writing in a hurry, and it says, "I wonder if we should be talking in front of Barbara's client so do you know do you guys know who this is? Was this one of you guys write this? I don't know if we should be talking in front of Barbara's client. And so I wonder, who's Barbara? And in this note, who are we? Because I didn't write this, and I didn't receive it. And also, what are we talking about? I, I thought a little context would be nice and would help. But client tells me that it has something to do with a business relationship or maybe a business proposal or maybe it's legal or something like that. I don't know exactly. Uh, what the context was, but it really had nothing to do with us. Uh, the Bible, though, has something to do with us, and we don't always know what the context is, and if we do, we can understand a little more of this. The prophecy that comes is coming in a moment of uncertainty for Israel, for, for Judah in particular, that there's uncertainty that surrounding this. This prophecy is being preached to a king who is bracing himself for a conflict with a nation which is stronger than his. Okay, if this is Ahaz, then at this time, they're preparing for the invasion of a nation known as the Assyrians who are nasty folks. They would skin people and use their skin for wallpaper. They would take the best and the brightest and they would behead them and stack their heads into pyramids in their own honor. They were nasty folks. And they love to taunt people with the fact that our God is greater than your God and that's why he's given us victory. So this is the threat that's looming. And in the middle of that, God says to them, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his head. He's going to bring, ultimately, peace. Not just absence of conflict, but well-being to the people of Israel. And So he's prophesied here to him that there could be victory if they'll trust in God. But Ahaz, he wants to trust in foreign armies rather than in the Lord. And he's anxious about the survival of his nation and his own people. And God sends Isaiah with a message. And throughout the books up to this point, he's rebuked him for thinking that other nations can guarantee the survival of God's people when God himself is their guarantor. Listen to me today. God himself is the guarantor of your salvation. No one else. Listen, we can't even, like back in the days of Rome, they couldn't, they couldn't provide what they really wanted. They called it Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They wanted to provide some kind of peace, but they couldn't really, they could only provide the absence of conflict. They could never provide the true substance of the blessing of God. We can't get that from our schools, and we can't get that from our hospitals, and we can't get that from our government. Are you with me? If we're going to have peace, it's going to come from the Prince of Peace and nowhere else. Don't look anywhere else. You'll be disappointed. You may go along for a ways and go, this is good. This is good. They may be able to extend our life, but what is long life for? There are some people living in despair, and they have healthy bodies. And some abuse their bodies, and some take their lives in hopelessness. When there's no natural reason, they should have gone. Why? Because they lack real peace. Come on, isn't that true? So Ahaz looking to something else for survival. So he calls on Pharaoh. He wants to double down and, and uh, hedge his bed, I guess, to make sure that this thing, we'll trust in the Lord, but we're also going to get Pharaoh on our side. Well, there's a massive battle that takes place that takes Pharaoh completely out of the picture. Isaiah also, he further reminds the king that he's not the one who is the center of the story. There's a greater king who will come from his lineage, the Messiah who will accomplish far more than he ever could. God himself will come and will sit upon David's throne. This king is thinking of his throne. And what Isaiah is doing as he prophesies here is there's hope beyond this. And you need to recognize, King, that you're not the answer. There's somebody that's greater that's coming. And he will sit upon the throne, and he will deliver on his promises. Come on, isn't that good news? How many have been disappointed in people making promises? We can know, we can bank on the promise of God. And finally, God guarantees the existence of the Davidic rule, which will survive, and it's going to outlast every other rule, every other government, other armies, and will reign forever. The zeal of the Lord's going to accomplish this. He's the one who will provide the peace. He's going to be sure to make sure that it happens. I'm thankful for that, and I hope you are too. That this world's a, a crazy world, and I don't, I don't really know if we can say these times are crazier than other times. I think I wasn't there for it, but I think the '60s must have been crazy. There were times in the early part of this century just crazy. Times, there have been massive times through history where it's as weird and as tumultuous as it is right now. But the thing that kind of sustains us is the fact that we don't bank on externals to provide us with peace. It's in Jesus. Folks, hear me today. That's where our peace is. And it comes because He came and He delivered upon it and He set us in good standing. With God, If you've got God on your side, remember what the scripture said, if God is for us, who can be against us? What weapon formed against us will ultimately prosper? Can the devil do harm? Can he fight against our lives? Yes, he can. Sometimes he gets some licks in on us, doesn't he? But can he take you down? Not if you don't go with him. You can choose to go with him. You can choose to surrender. You can choose to capitulate. Or you can choose to stand with Jesus and win. He will cause us to win the battle. Now listen, we can have this right relationship with Jesus because with God because of what Jesus did. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now listen, if we're taking peace here to mean absence of conflict that only really applies in the relationship with god but what he's talking about here is so much more than that we can have a right relationship with god and have peace with god but it also means that we can come under the blessing of god are you with me do you hear what i'm saying in this that that peace means more it means well-being it means more than just absence of conflict when god says you will have my peace he's saying that your well-being is in my hands your well being is in my hands. John Oswald, and his, uh, his is probably the best commentary out there on the book of Isaiah right now. Maybe Motir is the other example of that. But uh, Oswald says, Someone must take the disease and give back the health, must bear the blows and give back wealth. And when he says wealth, he means it's in, in its original sense. I never saw this before. Wealth means well being. Do you know that? Not just having money. Well-being. He gives us well-being. It doesn't mean the absence of conflict. In fact, the presence of conflict may be there. But we have, instead of the absence of conflict, we have the presence of well-being. Do you think that it's possible with Jesus to be whole in the midst of the storm? Is it? Can you be tranquil in the middle of a storm going on around you? I think so. Can you be as if it is well with my soul when it feels that you're in the middle of a fight? I think you can. The reason is because the Prince of Peace has come and brought peace into our lives. You don't have to be overtaken by circumstance. Folks, that's good news. I need to hear it, and you need to hear it. That our circumstances don't dictate who we are. Christ does. Who's the Lord? circumstance? Other people? Satan? Is Satan more powerful than God? What dictates our well-being? If he's the prince of peace, he's come with the promise of peace. He's put it in our lives, and there's the guarantee that one day what we've received now, there's an already and a not yet. There's an already he's given us peace, and there's a portion of that peace that, like a cornucopia, you know the cornucopia, the horn of plenty? It just expands as time goes on. And we'll find at the end of it the outflowings of his blessings. You understand that when he comes again as the prince of peace, there's going to be a true time of peace. And the things that we battle with now, the, the conflicts that we deal with in the world now, they won't be as they were. But in the present situation, we have conflict around us, but we can still have peace within us. Sometimes we wonder at that. We think that God needs to take away all of our problems if we're to have peace. So we're praying, Lord, give us peace. And what we mean is, Lord, take away that annoying neighbor or that irritant at work or the fact that I've got to to live in this life with all this stress, take all that away. That's what we mean a lot of times when we pray, God, give us peace. But what we often find is that what he does is he gives us a suitability to fit and be well in the midst of those things. That's important to know, that he can give us that. So we want him to take all that away, then we can have peace. And we're disappointed when he doesn't. We wonder if he's truly the king of peace after all. Let me take us to a New Testament thought here, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 18. And I think you know where this is going. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Listen, we're hard-pressed on every side. Have you felt that before? We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet, inwardly, we're renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far aways them all. So let's fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Can you have peace in the middle of the visible? Yes, if you have your eyes fixed on the eternal, so rejoice. God says, uh, Jesus said in particular, uh, rejoice not that demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in heaven. And he said, in another place, no one can pluck you out of my hand. He's got you in his hand. That's peace. It's not that there's not any more wars or that, you know, there's not stressful things at home and uh, at work and all around us, and the world's gone crazy. No, you have peace in the middle of that because the Prince of Peace has come into your life. I'd like you to look at the guarantee of peace here. The guarantee of peace is brought to us by the zeal of the Lord. The zeal of the Lord. You can see this in different places. One uh, place it calls him the the jealous God. And and this word has a big uh, range of meaning. But the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, it tells us. Um, Look down with me at verse 7. Of his greatness and of his government and peace, there will be no end he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Who's going to accomplish the peace? Who's going to bring it? You? This is me shoveling with my little shovel out there trying to accomplish peace when Jesus brings in the cat. You know what I mean? He's the one that brings He's the true peace giver. The zeal of the Lord. One of the things that's troubled me a lot in Christian life is the the fact that at times I get excited and other times that excitement wanes. Does anybody else had problems with that? I was a youth pastor and it used to bug me that our kids would go to camp. They'd get super fired up like you'd never seen them that high on Jesus before. And then we'd come home and you could almost pick it to the day. Within a week, it was almost like they didn't want to come back to church like they went this high and they dipped down almost the exact same amount in proportion to that how could that happen and I found out that there's this spiritual law or law of humanity called the law of undulation It has crests and it has troughs and so it's up and down and up and down and life is like that we get super excited about something and then after a period of time that can wane and we can get excited again, and then that can wane. And what we have to understand is that it's not about how we feel. Okay? Zeal is not feeling, zeal is purposed intent. So you keep moving through it, and our God is our God a fickle feeler? He's not, He doesn't go by what He feels. He persists through whatever he feels at any moment to accomplish his purpose. Does God feel? I believe he does. But I think his purpose dictates what he's going to do, not his feelings. And so he's driven by his zeal to accomplish this. And if he says, I will do it, he will do it. Zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And this can be seen both in the panorama of history and in the portrait of the moment. The panorama shows us a faithful God working through generations of faithful and often unfaithful people to finally bring the promised Messiah to the world. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of children. So the fullness of time came. Was his people, Were his people always faithful? No. Sometimes they were embarrassingly not so. Even David, God fulfilled his promise still because he's faithful. And you can see that in the big picture. But the zeal of the Lord is also seen in the moment when he knew the end was near, Jesus did, and what had to be done. He didn't stop short of completing the mission. He pushed forward toward pain. And steadfastly towards suffering, you can see it, he sets his face like a flint. That's the zeal of Jesus, that he's going to do it. Does he want to go to the cross? Lord, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass. But he persists. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish something. He works on our behalf because of his zeal. You can see it in the big picture and you can see it in the moment. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, be done. Luke chapter nine, verse fifty-one, is a great uh, cross-reference to that. Isaiah fifty verses five through seven, setting his face like a flint. He's he's hardened his gaze in a direction despite what he knows is coming. Anybody ever had to do that, where you knew this was going to be hard, but you you prepared yourself and you went and did it. Okay, that's Jesus did that. But maximize yours to the nth power. That's what He did because of His zeal. And all of it was for our peace. Isaiah 53, 5, Romans 5, 1, all for our peace. The zeal of the Lord accomplishes our peace. Our peace comes through the commitment of our God. Our peace comes at the price He paid. The zeal of the Lord accomplishes this. You know, the... These concluding words to that passage are um, cry of expressing uh, express certainty as well as deep longing. As Isaiah says, "This the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this." I think he sees it's not going to be in his generation because God's going to give them reprieve during Isaiah's day, but in Jeremiah's day, about a hundred years later, the gig's up. The Babylonians are coming, and this time, the discipline of God is not going to be turned back. And so he sees through it, though, that a shoot will spring up, as we talked about Isaiah chapter 11, out of the stump of Jesse, and there will be hope, and it will go beyond this. The, zeal, the reason there's hope, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. If you need to have a reason to have faith today, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Is he able to do anything? Yes? Is there anything too hard for him? And by the way, uh, when it says that in Jeremiah, anything too hard for him, it's, is anything too wonderful for him, is anything too pella for the Lord? That's the word that's used there. It's the same word when it says he will be called wonderful, miraculous counselor. He can get it done because he can do the miraculous for us. The Hebrew word for zeal is sometimes rendered zealous. You can uh, see some different translations on this. Uh, Sorry, jealous. Sometimes it's rendered jealous. Uh, There's a French translation that if we were to translate it word for word into English, the jealous love of Yahweh Sabaoth will do this. He's going to accomplish this. The Hebrew word sometimes means jealousy. And it carries a sense of great passion and desire. It can be used of people but also of God. Here it doesn't mean ill will when he talks about his zealous or his jealousy. It means uh, instead of uh, meaning jealousy in the context of the strong commitment. That's why most versions render it zeal because this word can be jealous. But when it says he's jealous to see this accomplished, it means that, that out of his passionate and strong commitment, he will see to it that it's done. The French translation actually says, this is what the Lord of the universe will do in his ardent love. This is what he will bring peace because of his ardent love, the Lord of the universe. He loves you and me. What the Prince of Peace gives us is a guarantee that your well-being is not in the hands of circumstance, bodily condition, past sin, plans of sinful humanity, or even the devil himself. Shalom is given by the Lord. Aren't you glad? See, I grew up in church often thinking the devil had more power than he does. His power is limited. He's powerful. He's more powerful than us by ourselves. But when we have Jesus and we stand in his authority, we can match him, not because of us. Let's not get proud and say something ridiculous like, bring it on, Satan. You don't want that. Trust me. But we can stand in his power and be victorious. It's good. It's good. So, none of those things can outlast the the zeal of the Lord. Finally, the durability of peace. And there's a lot less here, but listen to this. Of the presence, or of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's verse 7. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this i think sometimes our view of christ is not radical enough maybe it could be described as we believe in this endless cycle of people being born and dying and and the future just goes on ad infinitum forever we're just this is going to happen from now on but that's not biblical is it what does the bible say the bible says that jesus is coming back and he will rule and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and the corrupt earth will be done away with and he will make all things new and his kingdom will be one that's every bit as tangible as the one in which we live right now folks i hope you understand this that we're not talking about pie in the sky by and by and something nebulous like floating on clouds and playing harps and living like angels no it's a new life that god will give us and it's a it's a life of peace in which all the obstructions to peace are removed, and every benefit and blessing of peace is given. That's what we're called to. That's what we will receive when Christ comes back. This is the final condition of things. It's not just the way things end. Peace endures unchanging. Whatever stands between now and then, this is how it ends for those in the kingdom. Just as the throne will never end, so his peace will never end. The reason a peaceful kingdom can exist is that the Lord establishes it. Look at, uh, look at verse 7 with me again. He says, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it. Who's responsible for the kingdom of peace? The prince of peace. He will establish it. Establish means to, to make it happen. He's going to accomplish it. But then it says he will establish it and he will uphold it. All of us know it's easy to start something. It's much harder to sustain it. Are you with me? Anybody started like tons of projects? Anybody make New Year's resolutions? And, like This is what I'm doing this year. I'm going to read 25 books. It's easy to make that promise in our zeal. It's a lot harder to, to maintain it. It's easy to make great commitments to God. It's a lot harder to maintain it like we're gonna do, you know we're gonna read through the Bible this next year, or my house i'm I'm gonna stop arguing. I'm gonna stop arguing, okay, and we get in that moment and there's the right word. we think it's given by the Holy Spirit, but it's maybe another spirit. there's the right word that could be said, and we could fix this situation and we could say it. And so we've made a great commitment by sustaining it. Listen, he not only establishes the kingdom, he maintains it. He upholds it with his righteousness. He upholds the kingdom. That means that he will be the one responsible for making sure it continues on. You see the difference in these words. One has to do with causing something to come into existence. The other has to do with making sure that it continues in a certain condition. And we can recognize that both these are important or there will be no kingdom of peace. It has to be started. It has to be sustained. That's the radical idea of Christmas, is that peace has come. It starts in our hearts as we receive the Prince of Peace. And you can live with peace in your life and well-being. That doesn't mean you never have trouble. You'll never get the flu or whatever. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that Your well-being is guaranteed by Christ, and we can live with a certain hope. Man, that changes so much when you know that your last day will be a good day. Your last day will be a good day. When you close your eyes for the last time and you open them up in the presence of Jesus, it's going to be a good day. Think of the alternative. Having a great life, you might have yachts and all the money you could ever spend in this life, and dread the fact that that's going to come to an end permanently. Can you imagine being in that condition and not knowing Jesus and closing your eyes for the last time, finding that you wake up into a torturous hell worse than this world ever was? That's the other side of it. For you and me, we've got, we are heirs of the Prince of Peace. We're heirs of the King. And we know that we've got something coming for us that's a good day. So what does this have to do with us? I think the question may reveal a problem in our thinking. The question could show a view of the world which has this being our story in which God appears every now and then. And that's backwards. This is God's story. We're characters in it. And uh, his peace is a peace that he gives. He brings us into well-being, but he brings us into relationship with him. This kingdom of peace is not about you alone. It's only yours through him. It's bigger, and it's better than anything we could build for ourselves. So what does it have to do with us? It has to do with who you are in him. If you're going to be living in the kingdom of peace, it has to do with who you are in him. You can't do this on your own. We've tried. We've failed. That's what the Tower of Babel is all about. We will make a name for ourselves. God says you can't have peace that way, and I'll show you. All he did was have to change the languages a little bit and everybody was at war and everybody said, we don't like them, we're going over here. And they spread out through the earth because there was a false sense of peace. And he will not allow that to stand. This has to do with who you are in him. It also has to do with how you relate to the king. Is he king or are you king? It also has to do with what the future will look like I think uh, this might be weird to say at this point in our message, but I think Christians are the only ones that can have a balanced view of life if you look at things truly biblically. Because there are pessimists out there that think it's all bad, and there are optimists out there that think it's all good. And I think the Christian can look at the bad in its worst form And can also look at the good because we know there's a God who's come in. You can see the sinfulness of humanity. You can also see the goodness of God. And you can see how there's something redeemable even in the worst of kinds. Why? Because we have a different perspective on this. That there's both bad and good in the world. And God is ultimately good and purely good. And he's able to redeem that which is bad. And he's redeemed us. Future is bright for those that are looking to the Prince of Peace. And I, I would have you to know as we close here, God's has created only one place for humanity. Did you know that? We're like mad because God has created hell. He didn't create hell for people. Did you know that? It's for the devil and his angels. And he honors our free choice. We've come full circle to talk about freedom again. He's honored our choice of freedom to say, If you will not choose me, I have no other place for you to go. That's the choice that people have made apart from Him. He's only made one place. That's to be with Him. That's to be in the kingdom of peace. Will you, will you choose it? <laughs> I like, uh, I've been hearing this. It's been going through my mind lately when uh, Benjamin Franklin came out of the continental congress in eighteen eighty, eighteen seventy eight. 1878 uh, a lady asked him do we have a republic or a monarchy do you know what he said a republican a republic sorry <laughs> a republic if you can keep it if you can keep it we have a peace if you can keep it and you can with the help of the Lord amen stand with me if you would thank God these are wonderful words and if it's not been good, that's because I've done injustice to it. And this is a wonderful passage which we can, we can glean hope. And I hope you'll have hope through all this, and you'll have peace through all this. If you've not found strength yet in God, today would you say to him, Lord, I want to put my well-being, my trust for my well-being in your hands. If you've never said yes to Christ, today you can say to him simply, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want your peace. I'll let you rule in my life, you can't have peace by being the king. You can only have peace by surrendering to the king of peace. Would you do that today? Amen. For others, you might be going through something uh, particularly difficult, and it's it's hard maybe in your mind to bridge the true peace that God has given you and that psychological sense of peace. And maybe today God can help you with that, to have a real affirmation and to live with a sense of emotional and mental peace about what God has done. It's not the absence of conflict. You might pray, and he may take away those hard circumstances. He, he often does that. But sometimes he allows them to remain in order to do something within us. And We need to know that all is well. We need to know that all is well with who we are because of what Christ has done. The Prince of Peace has come into the world, and he done it, he's done it in such a marvelous way what's more peaceful than a baby? <laughs> what a great what a great symbolic act. He sent a baby. Is there anything threatening about that? A baby who would grow up to turn the world upside down. And he's yours and mine. Christ our Lord. Amen. These altars are open. I don't know, maybe God's speaking to you in a particular way about how to approach him in prayer, but subject today is to know the Prince of Peace. And if you don't, get to know him by making that profession of faith. And if you know him, would you come to know him more fully today? Before we go, let's spend a few moments in prayer. God bless you.